Lord, what a joy it is to sing to you, Lord, praise Father, praise Son, praise Spirit, three in one. And just a great opportunity now, Lord, as your family has gathered here together, you being the head, we being your sheep and you being our shepherd. And we thank you that we get to actually look at the word that you've given us today that is living that's active, that works, and we get to choose to bend our will to its truths. So Lord, we don't want to go through the routine of just Sunday morning attending church, but we want to know and to experience the fact that, that this is a day where you want us to connect with you and to have fellowship with you and to experience your presence. And I pray, Father, that we would have an ear to hear what the Spirit's saying and Holy Spirit, that you'd have your way through your Holy Word, and that it would mold and make our minds and our hearts like our wonderful Savior. We know you're coming quickly, and I pray today's truths will be part of the preparation in each one of our lives to meet you face to face. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Acts, or yeah, Acts. We're in John 2, if you want to turn there with me. John 2, and we're going to try to tackle this chapter today, but no guarantees. In the third day, there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. I usually reference this when I do a wedding. You know, I have the opportunity. I've done, I think, two weddings this year. And uh, I usually reference this in my wedding messages and I think it's very important that, and we see that today, that, that so many people extend this invitation for Jesus to come to the wedding. And I see often in people's lives, and I don't ever want to become a victim of this, is that sometimes we have the ability to leave Jesus at the altar and forget to carry him forth into the marriage. And I want you to know this about Jesus Christ, is he's a responder to your invitations. Sometimes we, we just kind of pick up ourselves by our own bootstraps. We keep pressing through life. We keep doing things as, as best as we can our way. And then all of a sudden we realize that we're facing situations, we're facing difficulties, trial storms, whatever it might be, and we've never even invited Jesus in the midst of it. I'm reminded of when the disciples were out on the boat and the storm raged up. They thought they saw a ghost out on the sea, and it was Jesus, and they invited him into the boat, and then everything changed. And sometimes we need to just remember that Jesus is looking to be invited into our situations. But you also, we also have to remember who we're inviting into our situations. This is Jesus. This isn't Jesus, do it my way, Jesus. This is Jesus, let's do it your way, Jesus. This is Jesus, Lord of Lords. This is Jesus, King of Kings. And we see so often in the situations of our life, we are so desperate and we need him so much to move because things come up in our lives like it does at this wedding feast that we did not see coming. But you can trust that if you invite him, he'll be coming. He'll step into your situation. So we look at this and 
And like I said before, you know, I, I believe, and I share this at my weddings that I do, that, that this is a great act of wisdom, inviting Jesus. And so many people do. They get married in a church. They have a pastor. You know, they, they have a, a, a prayer. They, they read 1 Corinthians 13, or, or they give a message, and they give godly vows in all those things. But then what? We have to ask Jesus from time to time, what is his location in our marriage? Because he should be front and centered the way he was invited to be in this wedding to be carried out, not just in the chapter, the wedding chapters of life, but the rest of life's chapters together as we do life together. It says here that Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. So now all of a sudden, something happened that, that they didn't see coming. All right? They, all of a sudden, you know, everything that they had prepared was now depleted. It was empty. That which once was full. And we see here that Mary comes to Jesus. Obviously, she had some kind of an impact. I don't know if it was a relative of theirs or just good friends in the area. But, but Mary knew the situation and she came to Jesus about it. And she said they have no wine, they've run out. It would have been a social catastrophe, really. We do not see Joseph at this point. He probably had passed on. This is probably the point where he died. We did see him when they lost sight of Jesus and he was busy about his father's business in the temple at the age of 12. We did see him here, but Jesus is probably around the age of 30 and, and we don't see him, but we see here that he's the oldest of the family and, and she's coming to him for help. And, and Jesus said, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. So that, that term woman there, it almost seems like, man, that's a little rough on your mom, Jesus. But, but really that's a term of endearment and it's a term of great respect. It means lady. The Greek word is gune, and it literally means lady. What have I to do? What does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, now, Mary knew something that nobody else knew. She knew that this was the Messiah. She knew that this was Emmanuel. She knew that this was Almighty God who could do anything at any moment. I think about her, and I wonder if she wasn't really anticipating to a great degree he coming, him coming into his, his ministry and showing himself as the Messiah. She might not have even fully understood. She might have been thinking also that he would be restoring uh, Israel as the power and bringing peace and everything else. But, but one thing she did experience her whole life was she was a, a victim of accusations and slander because of the birth of Christ. We'll see it in John 8 when they say to Jesus, we weren't born of fornication, basically saying your mother was messing around, and that was the rumor in the area. Who else would believe that God had gotten her pregnant? So, so we don't know exactly what's going on through her mind, but we know that she came to Jesus about this situation. She says, what have I do with thee? My hour is not yet come. And I believe the hour that he's referencing here isn't a specific 60-minute period, but it's a time frame. It's a time frame that we're going to see in John 17 where he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thyself. And it's going to be comprised of Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. This, this special time where, where people will see that he is who he proclaimed to be. 
So verse 5 says this, and his mother said unto the servants, look at this, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, the servants had options. They could either listen to him or not. <laughs> look at, as believers, you and I, we have choices whether to listen to Jesus or not. These servants, these unnamed servants, are going to actually be examples to us how, how we can get so greatly blessed if we will just simply obey. The simplest acts of obedience bring the blessings of God into our life. And his mother said unto the servants, whatever he saith unto you, do it. This was the counsel of his earthly mother. mother. Now, the counsel of his heavenly father, we see on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember what he said? This is my beloved son hear him. Keep hearing him. Okay? So the earthly mother, the the heavenly father, and what they're doing, they're pointing everybody to what Jesus is saying. And it's so important for us. I don't know what's happened with Christianity these days, but it almost seems like obedience is something that's optional. Like we can just choose whether we want to obey or not. But if Jesus is Lord of lords and Lord of the life, then it should be our desire to yield ourselves to what he speaks into our life. So the way that she speaks this to them is do it. It literally means do not hesitate. Don't hesitate. Look at hesitation, okay? Because as believers, you ever been prompted by the Holy Spirit or given an opportunity and you don't take it? You know, there's so many things that flash through my mind where God's given me these opportunities and I hesitated and I blew it. And really, hesitation will, will produce regretful, missed opportunities. And I'm telling you, I'm speaking from experience. I have different opportunities that ran through my mind. I just hesitated and I blew it. And what God could have done with it if I just would have done it at that moment without hesitation. And it says here that there were set there six water pots of stone and after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece or 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said, fill the water pots with water and look what the, and they filled them up to the brim. Look what these individuals did. This is, this is brim filled faith. Okay. And, and when it's filled to the brim, there's, there was nothing lacking there. And I think when we, when we look at our lives and, and really to be, be challenged by these things, if we have brim-filled faith, that means that there's no room for unbelief. There's no room for a lack of faith. You know, they, they could have filled it halfway up, partway. First of all, they filled it. You know, fill it with water. Okay. They asked for wine. You want water? We'll fill it up with water. And they filled it right up to the brim. But you know what they did? They just simply responded to Jesus' words. And that's when things change. You know, I think about Peter. Peter didn't have a brim-filled faith. Remember, we've talked about this before. We see it in Luke's account, chapter 5, you know. And and he's like, hey, you guys catch any fish? He's he's like, no. He's like, why don't you let down your nets, plural, for, for a catch? And he's like, master, we fished all night. But nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net, singular, and he hauled in a catch. And, and how many times we do that, and how easily it is to do that when we just do a little bit instead of going in full commitment like these individuals did. They set forth really a great example to us. When, when Jesus 
cleansed the ten lepers. You know, he said, go show yourself to the priest. That's what he told them to do. It didn't say they were cleansed and go show themselves to the priest. He said, go show yourself to the priest. That was his word to them. You know what they did? They walked out his word to them and it says, and as they went, they were cleansed. You know what they did? They simply responded to what Jesus had said of them. And that's when things began to change. And if you're looking for change in your life, because there's areas in my life, I'm looking for a lot of change. You know what it is? It's you and I responding to Jesus and what he's speaking into our life. What he's speaking into our life. And then walking it out by faith and by obedience. Walking out the word as a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. But we see here that these water pots are going to be filled up, but look at what kind of water pots they were. It says here, and they were actually, they were clay. It says that they were set there of six water pots of stone after the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing their two or three firkins apiece. So, so these were purified vessels, purified vessels that Jesus would pour into. And then he'd do some transforming work in that purified vessel, and then it would be spilled out for others. If you will, go with me just for a minute to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Jesus is looking to pour forth who he is and his power into vessels today. We have the opportunity to either invest this life or to waste this life in the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 2 verse 21, or verse 20 says, In a great house there is not only vessels of gold and silver, but wood and earth, some to honor, some to dishonor. But if a man, okay, a believer, will therefore purge himself, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified in meat for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. What does that mean? That means that we are vessels in the hand of the Lord, and if we want to choose to purge ourselves from anything that is dishonoring, Greek word, akathero, to cleanse, it literally means to remove what is making it unclean. If we want to deal with the issues of our heart, and if we want to from time to time, find ourselves in a place of confession or repentance, identifying things in our life that are contrary to the nature of God or the word of God, things that we don't want in there, things that are sinful, compromising, whatever they might be. But we take that walk with Jesus serious and we get cleansed. You know what he says? There's a vessel I can use. Not because it's perfect, because it's sincere. Not because it lives under self-lordship, but because it lives under Jesus's lordship. And God's looking for those vessels. Remember, purified, not perfect. Just someone who knows their own weaknesses and ready to deal with these things before the throne of God and to trust and believe that God will pour himself in so that we can be a vessel that is meat for, sanctified and meat for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. That's what made the early church so powerful. There was so much purity. The word of God was everything to them. And the scripture tells us that every word of God is pure and because it was having its way with their life, they became people who were just blessed of the pure in heart for they'll see God. 
And the word was having its work and it was producing great things through their lives and they were vessels of honor, fit and meat, and the master used them to a great degree. You can go back to John with me. And they filled them up to the brim and, and he said unto them, now look at draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast and, and, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called unto the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. You know what we see here? We see big time that obedience brings about blessing. It's as simple as that. And faith brings about fruit. That's what we got to take from this in our lives as believers. You know, obedience brings about God's blessing. And you know what these servants did? They didn't lean on their own understanding. They trusted in the Lord. That's what Jesus said to do, and that's what they did. Did it make sense? No, it didn't make sense. It doesn't need to make sense. If Jesus said it and you do it, you'd be amazed what will happen on the other side of obedience. Be amazed what happens on the other side of faith. When you read Hebrews 11, you go through the hall of faith. You go through different people of the faith. There was a lot of things they were called to do that made no natural sense. But because they reverenced God so much that they yielded themselves and obeyed him by faith, and God blessed it and did amazing things. I think we live in a day where everybody wants to see the amazing works of God. But I think God's looking down from heaven in his church and saying, I want to see committed obedience, committed faith. That's the vessel that I want to work through. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So this was the first of Jesus's miracles. You know, there's a bunch of extra biblical writings about Jesus when he was young and all these miracles that he did and and I don't know where this stuff comes from, but it comes from the devil. But anyhow, here in John chapter 2, we're told here that this is the beginning of his miracles. But you want to hear something encouraging? There's nothing in the Bible that tells us there's an end of Jesus' miracles. First Corinthians 12 says, One of the gifts of the Spirit is the working of miracles. It's a spiritual gift. I look at this Jesus that I watch walk through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I realize he's the same yesterday, today, and will be forever. And I wonder sometimes for us, maybe it's time to start expecting more. Start praying with greater faith. Start asking God for the impossible and quit putting limits on the one that we're praying to. I believe God still does miracles. That's why I've seen God do miracles. You know the greatest miracle that I experienced was when Jesus Christ himself stepped into my life. Changed everything. No self-reform. No morality. Becoming a partaker of divine nature. It is unbelievable how God in heaven would choose to step into our lives, raise us up from the dunghill, set us amongst the princes of his people, put his nature, gift us by the Holy Spirit, give us convictions against sin, and give us appetites for things that are godly. There's no way I could do that on my own. 
That's a work of God. One of the things that I think we need to see here is that the miracles of Jesus, this is the beginning. I think John tees off on specifically seven. I don't know how many there are altogether, but as you look through through the, the gospels, that there are several miracles that we see take place that Jesus does uh, through the four gospels. And I believe for those of you who are saved in this room here today, I believe that this is a room full of miracles uh, by the working of God's grace. But what I see with miracles is that, that miracles are not something that Jesus did to produce faith. Miracles are something that Jesus did to confirm faith. Miracles are something that, that, that Jesus did to, to really reveal to people who he was. Don't ever forget that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you want to grow in your faith, it's not going to be by the things you see, but it's going to be by the things that are in here that you choose to take into here. I'm going to give you a point. Go to Luke chapter 16 with me for a minute because Jesus gave a, a great illustration of an event that took place in, in two men's life. So this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And we realize that Lazarus was a poor beggar that was laid at his gate and, and he begged every day for just the table scraps. And it's obvious the rich man gave him no attention, gave him no compassion and there came a day when they both had their last day here on earth. We don't know what happened, but I do know this is not a parable. This is a true account because Jesus never used specific names in parables. And although he says the rich man, he labels him the rich man because this rich man lived outside of becoming his child and Lazarus was his. So they die, and in verse 23, it says, In hell he lifts up his eyes in torments, and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, son Lazarus, that he, may dip, that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. Here's a peek into eternity. Jesus gives us his peek into eternity. And they had reasoning, they had understanding, they had remembrance, they had feeling. And, and, but Abraham said, son, remember in your lifetime you received all these good things and Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted your torment and beside all this, between you and us there's this great gulf and they which would pass from you to us can't and we can't go to you. But look what he says in verse 27, okay, because he has the remembrance of this life. I pray thee, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Now he's in hell, and he's burdened for the spiritual condition of his siblings back at home on earth. And Abraham said unto him, look what Abraham says here. They have Moses and the prophets. That's the word. Moses and the prophets, they got the word. But even if one went to them from the dead, they won't repent. The miracle of a resurrection, even if I let you come back, they would not repent. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith does not come by seeing a miracle. 
we, we, we need to be in the word because we're living in days that Jesus warned us about just before he would return that deception would be reaching its maximum, spiritual deception. And even Antichrist, when he shows up on the scene, underneath the power of Satan, he's going to deceive people with lying signs and wonders. But you know what? The truth of God's word will always keep us free. That's why it's so important for you and I that we're students of this word and that we're in this word and that this word is washing us and it's renewing us and that we're building our faith one layer upon a time in the wonderful word of God. That's where faith comes from. So Jesus does do miracles, and we're going to see him do miracles. But at the end of this chapter, we're going to see that it didn't really matter. So, so you can go back to John chapter 2, and we find him now. It, it says, in the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, at this time, uh, they would also be celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I think what, what's very... Um, important about that was this feast was during this feast, uh, the father of the house, they'd go through the house and make sure there was no leaven in the home at all. They wouldn't use leaven in any of the cooking. They'd get it out of the home because leaven was a picture of sin and compromise and how it would spread so much like yeast through, through uh, bread, dough. And, and so that's what they would do during that feast. But we're at Passover, and we talked about Passover a little bit last week with Jesus being the Lamb of God that we see in Exodus 12, how when they're getting ready to leave Egypt, how, how they had to take a lamb without blemish and they had to sacrifice it and put its blood over the lentil and the doorposts of the home. And when the angel of death came, that, that they would not experience death because they're covered underneath the, the blood of this lamb without blemish. And it was a picture pointing to the lamb that would come and he would shed his blood for the whole world. So they're going to celebrate this so, because it was a remembrance that they were once in bondage and that God in his faithfulness had delivered them. So the city at this time would be so heavily, densely populated. Uh, some writings say that there was a, as much as 225 million Jews at this time. Um, the lambs that were be sacrificed, there could be up to a quarter million lambs at this time. So, so this was a time of celebration. Celebrating. It was a time of remembering, and, and Jesus goes up. And it says here that he found in the temple those that sold ox and sheep and doves and the changers of money, and they were all sitting. So he, he walks in and he observes what was going on in the temple in the temple area. The temple area was about 35 acres. So he walks into the temple uh, area itself, probably here at the uh, court of the Gentiles, the outer court, and he's seeing so much corruption. And he's seeing so much hypocrisy. And he's seeing so much misrepresentation by the religious leaders and by the local government of who God truly is. And he found in the temple those that sold the oxen and the sheep and the doves and the changers of the money sitting and when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove him out of the temple. He drove him out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers' money and he overthrew the tables. Now here's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. <laughs> Ticked off. <laughs> but you know, it, it's, 
there's a righteous indignation I think as believers we all should have. There's a lot in this life that ticks me off. But the Bible says that we're to be angry and sin not. Planned Parenthood ticks me off. But I have no desire to go do damage to anyone. Yeah, I don't have that desire. There's just certain things that are just righteous indignation that we should have in our hearts, and that's what we see Jesus doing here. So as they were ripping people off, as they were rejecting what they brought for the sacrifice, so they had to buy their animals that they had raised, and they overcharged for them, and that they taxed them to even come into the temple. The temple tax was equivalent to about two days' wages, and Jesus watched all this. And he drove them all out. And he said unto them that sold doves, you take these things hence, you make not my father's house a house of merchandise. So we see here that he was furious by the misrepresentation of what was taking place. But look what he called the temple. He called it my father's house. This is the first time we see Jesus cast out and flip over tables. We're going to see it again. We see it in three. Uh, we see it also mentioned in the other gospels. And the second time he does it, he goes in and he does the same thing. And he said, "My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves." So he tried to bring this reform by bringing his authority to them, by getting their attention of what they were doing, and they would not listen. In Matthew twenty-three, he's there again, and he said. How I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, her chicks, but you would not. You rebelled against my drawing in your life. He says to you, behold, now your house is left unto you desolate. So now because they refused to do God's work, God's way, he gave it back over to them and he said it would be held desolate. And about 40 years later, Titus Vespasian would come in with the Romans, and they would actually destroy the temple. And the disciples remember that it is written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Now, this morning as I was driving in, I came in early this morning, I get here about 4.30 on a Sunday morning. Uh, I crested the hill. And I saw somebody had already gotten a good jump on setting their garbage out. You know, that beautiful grayish-greenish box sitting there on the side of the road. And kind of made me happy. And in a weird way, it made me happy. I like garbage day. Garbage day is a day when I get to get all the junk that's in my house and gather it all together from my house to my car to my football room and everything in between and get it packed down into this container and set it out to the road and they come by tomorrow morning and they take it all away. Well, when I look at scriptures like this, it reminds me, today's like garbage day. Because the Bible tells us Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost that's in you? What you have of God, you're not your own. 
You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. I look at these things and, and I come to the understanding that, that Jesus is so concerned that his people would be full of godliness and integrity. And we need to take assessment of ourselves to see what kind of trash that we're holding on to in our minds, in our hearts, that we're unwilling to hold on to that Jesus can get it out of us. He wants to take out the garbage. You know, we sit there, maybe something can pop into your mind. Maybe a person pops in your mind. Maybe you're holding resentment, unforgiveness. Maybe there's pride. Maybe there's covetousness. Maybe you're stealing something. I don't know. Let the Holy Spirit make application in your life. But this is what I do know, is I got great garbage men, but they don't love me so much. They don't come into my house and take it out. I got to be willingly set it out there. And then they take it away. And sometimes the way that we get our garbage out is just by identifying it and confessing it before the Lord. You know what, Lord? I blew it here. I've been holding on to this. Wow, that's pride. That's covetousness, whatever it might be. But that's trash that you don't want in your temple. I'm blood-bought, and I'm a temple of the Holy Ghost, and I want to represent you. I want you to walk, and I want you to look into my life, and I don't want you to see anything in there that might upset you. So you show me what's in there you don't want out of there, and by your grace, you drive it out of me. And that's how he takes us from glory to glory, by the Holy Spirit working through the Holy Word to make us more like the Holy Son of God. And he's so faithful to do that. I don't know about you, I pick up a lot of trash along the way in my life. It's very easy for things to get messy on the inside. But I've got a wonderful Bible. And it has the ability to wash everything out of me that needs to go. And I have a wonderful Savior that's ready to take it, forgive it, and cast it as far as the east is from the west when I'm ready to deal with it. So he shows up with his authority. And notice this, nobody stopped him. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thy house has eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said to him, what sign showest thou us, seeing that thou doest these things? Anytime anybody asked Jesus for a sign, it was always the same sign he pointed to. It'd be his resurrection. And this is what he says here. And Jesus answered and said, you destroy this temple. And in three days... I will rise it up. Then said the Jews, so he's talking about the temple of his body. The Jews said unto him, 40 and 6 years was this temple in building, and you're going to rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Now, very interesting for you and I to look at here. Uh, I want you to notice who Jesus assigns to his resurrection. He assigns himself, all right? He said, destroy this temple in three days. I'm going to do it. I'll rise it up. I will rise it up. Jesus says he will. So we ask ourselves, who resurrected Jesus from the grave? Jesus said he did. 1 Peter 3.18 says this. Listen, for Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. So the word of God in 1 Peter 3.18 says it was the Holy Spirit 
that brought him to life from the grave. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not a man, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God, the Father who raised him from the dead. So we sung that song today, you know, praise Father, praise Spirit, praise Son, God, three in one. That's what we're looking at here, okay? So we're looking at the Godhood itself who was responsible for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the grave, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Now verse 23 tells us that when, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. You know, we look at scriptures like that, and scriptures like that are very sobering. Because there is some faith that is not a saving faith. These individuals, they acknowledged him. They didn't doubt him. They didn't even speak against him. But I believe that what we're seeing here with these individuals are the same ones that we're going to see in John 6.66 when all of a sudden the disciples turned and they walked with him no longer. James tells us, you believe in one God, you do well. Even the devils believe and they tremble. And a reference of that in James chapter 2 is, what does your life say about the faith that you claim to believe? How does it prove it? Because we see he uses actually devils who believe and tremble. Okay, so they had an acknowledgement. They understood this. They're in the spiritual realm. They know that God's real. But you know what? They did nothing with that. They never yielded to God's authority. They chose rebellion. They They had an acknowledgement of the truth, but they did nothing with it. And scriptures like that are very sobering because it reminds me of what Paul said, that we have to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. Because verse 25 says, And he needed not that any man should testify him, for he knew what was in man. There might be a big crowd that was following him, but man... God doesn't see as man sees. Man sees on the outward. Man can see all the crowds. You can see churches jammed to the gills. But you know what? God looks at the heart. And we look at these things as believers. And we look at our own lives. And we say, okay, what fruit am I producing in my life? that I have a saving faith and not just an acknowledging faith. It's great you're here today. Coming to church, glad that we could fellowship together. But attending church doesn't make you a believer. Attending church doesn't make you saved. There's got to be that moment when you're all in. Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and Jesus Christ is who I need because he's the Savior and I'm a sinner. 
And I'm not coming for any other reason to Christ than that. He was impaled to a wooden cross 2,000 years ago, the most horrendous death ever because of my sin, because of what I did yesterday, because of what I thought yesterday, what I will accidentally think or do tomorrow. And that blood is precious to the saints of God. We might not do Passover and, and, and like the Jews do, but you know what? That's why we take communion once a month because we remember that blood that was shed for us and that body was broken because that was the day of our deliverance when that became something real in our lives. So, not all faith is a saving faith, is yours. That's what you got to ask yourself. You might be born into a Christian family or you might have had some kind of a goosebump experience, but... What did it produce on the other side of that? You got something real going on with Jesus. Because that's what we need to have. We need to have something real going on with Jesus. Because here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. All right? And many would walk no more with him. And Jesus said to the 12, will you go away also? And Peter speaks up and he says, you alone have the words of eternal life, I ain't going anywhere. That's my version. But I'm not go- we're not going anywhere. Where are we going to go? And I sure hope that's what's keeping you and me. Because that's what saving faith is. He is the author of my salvation, the finisher of my faith, and he alone has the words of eternal life And it's in him and what he did for me, I trust. Not because I'm reading this like a history book and and I know the facts about Jesus the way I know the facts about Abraham Lincoln. We bless you, Lord. We thank you for the gift that it is to be born again of your spirit. We thank you that you love us enough to step into our lives and to identify the things that you want to overturn because it's an act of your love. And we pray today, Lord, that if the Holy Spirit's made any application to our heart, Lord, that you would help us to get rid of any trash that we're holding on to inside because, Lord, we want to be like those purified water pots where you can pour yourself in that we might be able to be poured out and bring benefit into the lives of others and bring glory and honor to you. So I thank you for the lives of the people that are in this room here today. And I pray, Lord, that you would take John chapter 2 and give each of us personal application of what you want us to know, what you want us to see, and what you've wanted us to hear so that we would be living... a life for the glory of your Son, Lord. We bless you for your word, Lord. We bless you for your blood. We thank you for your love, for your faithfulness to us, Lord. Pray in our lives that you would work a degree of belief to the brim. 
Lord, that there be no room for anything empty in a realm of unbelief or faithlessness, but that you would continue to increase our faith, Lord. We thank you. Thank you for your word. Just going through it, Lord, we don't recognize it, but just as we go through it, that you use it, Lord, to build faith in us. So take us from faith to faith, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.